I have a question. How long do you think you could survive without electricity? A day, a week, a month, a year? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to realize that without electricity, uh, you couldn't flush your toilet, uh, you couldn't power on your stove, you couldn't preserve any food with your, uh, with your fridge or with your freezer. It'd be uh, impossible to keep your house warm in the winter with your furnace. You definitely couldn't pull out your phone and order dinner through Grubhub or call your mom to see what she's making for dinner. You couldn't charge your iPhone, which some of you could probably only survive an hour without that as it is, right? How long could you survive without electricity? Probably not that long. I mean, for such a modern discovery, a modern invention within the last couple hundred years, it's incredible how reliant we've become on uh, something that's really relatively new. So maybe the moral of the story is that our camp out next year will have a survival class, right? How to survive without electricity. But electricity reminds us of maybe one of the best, maybe one of the most important inventions of the modern age, which is the light bulb. Hard to imagine life without the light bulb. Maybe you've heard of the man who invented it, Thomas Edison. We've actually named our hipster bulbs after Thomas Edison, uh, partially because just as a, as a tribute to him more than anything, though the filament just looks a little bit familiar. But he invented light bulbs in 1879 after using 6,000 different filaments, and he finally found one that worked. But interesting quote from Edison in, that he said in 1879, we are striking it big in the electric light, better than my vivid imagination first conceived. Where this thing is going to stop, the Lord only knows. I find it interesting that Edison actually appealed to God's sovereignty and said, well, I don't know how far this is going to go, only God knows. And I think he would kind of chuckle a little bit today if he knew that we named a light bulb after him. But my guess is a lot of us are thankful uh, for light bulbs. And, you know, there's actually more in common between you and me and an Edison bulb than we might like to admit. Now, don't worry, I'm not calling you vintage or antique, though if the shoe fits. (laughs) But a light bulb doesn't do us very much good if it's not plugged in. It needs electricity. And the same is true for us. We don't do very much good unless we're plugged in. We can only find our purpose, we can only find our satisfaction, we can only find true meaning, the very definition of what it means to be alive when we're plugged into our source. And that's what we're going to see in John chapter 15 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. And I'm talking about something far deeper than just being plugged in to Christian community or just being plugged into the local church. This is foundational in what it means to be the life of a Christ follower, or foundational in the life of a Christ follower, rather. But we're continuing in the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus' last conversation with his disciples. And it starts in the Upper Room. And he washes his disciples' feet. And then he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and he predicts that Judas is going to be the one to betray him. And then, then Judas leaves. And, and Jesus continues to have this final conversation with his disciples. But as we look at John 15, context is key. Where does this conversation happen? Anybody know? It's not in the Upper Room. Look at the last verse of chapter 14. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. So I imagine that Jesus and his disciples, 11 of them, 
stood up, they left the upper room, and they're on their way. Where are they going? They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to the Mount of Olives. This is the place where Jesus is praying to the Father and pleading, uh, Father, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is the moment when he's sweating drops of blood because he's so stressed about what's about to come. He knows that he's gonna bear the full weight of humanity's sin on the cross. Meanwhile, the disciples 100 yards away are all sleeping, right? That's what's about to come. Jesus is on his way to the garden. And I can imagine that while Jesus is walking down the road, he looks on the right side of the path, and he sees a grapevine. And here's what he says. Verse one, I'm the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father's loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now, the, the vine, the branches, the grape metaphor, it might be a, a little bit foreign to us, but it was the opposite of foreign for the people of Israel. Remember in Numbers chapter 13, when Moses sent 12 spies into the land. You remember this story? And they walk in and they find a cluster of grapes so huge that they have to put it on a stick between two guys to carry back home. That's how big this cluster of grape, grapes was. The land of Israel is known for grapes uh, and for vineyards. So for a preacher to tell a story about a vine or a vineyard was probably even more common than a preacher today to use some sort of a sports analogy. I mean, Jesus probably, actually we know as we look at the New Testament, he used this sort of imagery over and over and over again. But for you and I, uh, we don't even know what a, a vine looks like. Alex, maybe you can throw up the, the picture. You can see it kind of has a couple different components, right? The, the vine would be kind of the thick part. There's the branches, and then there's the grape itself. And when we see Jesus call himself, I'm the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser, we think, oh, cool, this is a cool analogy. But that's not what the Jews thought. Remember Jesus' audience, he's talking to his disciples. And for a Jew who is rooted in scripture, this would bring up all sort of Old Testament imagery that we probably don't even know exists. It's called biblical theology. We want to understand uh, what the Bible as a whole uh, talks about the vine. And it's kind of some cool stuff. Let me prove it to you. You can stay in John 15, but I'm going to read a couple different passages. Psalm 80, starting in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You as God brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep root and filled the land. Then verse 14 says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So if, if God is the one who planted the vine and brought it out of Egypt, then according to Psalm 80, who's, who's the vine? It's Israel. It's Israel. It's God's chosen people who he rescued out of Egypt, brings them to the promised land and allows them to prosper. But do you hear what the psalmist 
is pleading with God. He's pleading, again, Lord, have regard for your vine. Don't ignore your people. Well, why would God be ignoring, punishing, disciplining his chosen people? Well, we see the theme, again, picked up in the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. But the more his fruit increased, the more altars that he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their hearts false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So Hosea pulls into the same metaphor. You hear what he's saying? That though Israel prospered, they abandoned God. They were faithless. Because God gave Israel everything that they could have ever needed, rescues them from slavery in Egypt, brings them to this land that the Old Testament uses this picture flowing with milk and honey, just prosperous and beautiful, takes care of all their needs. He drives out the enemies from the land. But more than anything, God gives them the opportunity to have this covenant relationship with himself. They can have a relationship with the God of the universe. But by their actions, Israel says, Israel says yeah, that's not really what we want. They run away from God. They pursue a relationship with the gods of the land. They pursue idolatry and they run away from the Lord. And in God's discipline of his people, he exiles them to a foreign land. Israel was a faithless vine. But then what does Jesus say? I am the, not just a vine, I am the true vine. And for the disciples to hear that, their mind is planked through Psalm 80. Their mind is planked through Hosea chapter 10, and they're thinking, and if Israel was the faithless vine, Jesus is, is the true vine. And in this way, Jesus has replaced Israel, a picture of the Messiah coming, the new covenant, a relationship with God that doesn't depend on the law, that depends on faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to have a real relationship with God. Our success is guaranteed when we're connected to the vine, when we're connected to Christ. The disciples, Israel, that no longer they're called the vine, they're called the branches, much less pressure because Jesus is the vine. But as Jesus continues in John chapter 15, he actually makes a distinction between the branches that are alive and branches that are dead, branches that bear fruit and branches that don't bear fruit. Look at John 15 verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then scroll down to verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And as the disciples hear Jesus share those words, they think of Ezekiel chapter 15. We won't turn there tonight, but it's a picture of Israel as a unfaithful vine getting thrown into the fire. Because what do you do with the dead branch? It's good for one thing, for kindling. And the fire that Jesus mentions in this text is probably exactly what you think it is. It's eternal punishment in a literal place that we might call hell. That's the destiny for a dead branch. With this metaphor, Jesus is giving us a picture of salvation, our, our relationship with Jesus himself. But since non-fruit-bearing branches are just thrown into the fire, is Jesus saying that we can lose our salvation? Is Jesus saying that a, a branch that was once connected can become disconnected to the vine? I don't think so. 
Think of a couple things Jesus says earlier in the book of John, John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, who's the father, that I should not lose, I, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or John 10, 29, my father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You hear what Jesus is saying? That once we become a Christian, once we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that, that nothing can change that. We can't become unadopted from God's family. Instead, as Jesus is talking about a live branch and a dead branch, he's talking about a branch that might have looked like an abiding branch. It might have looked alive, but it wasn't. And who might fit into that category? Judas. Judas. Judas fooled the rest of the disciples. Think in the upper room. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, what do the disciples do? Do they point a finger and say, yeah, it's going to be Judas? No, they all look at Jesus and ask, is it me? Am I the guy that's going to betray you? They had no idea. Judas may have fooled the disciples, but he didn't fool the Father. He didn't fool Jesus. He didn't abide. But does this mean that we become a Christian, that we're saved by bearing fruit? Do we earn our salvation by what we do? Absolutely not. And I know I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful to illustrate the progression when we think of our salvation. Alex, if you could put up the gospel equation, that would be great. So the first bubble says the gospel. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection on our behalf so that we could have a relationship with God. Understanding the gospel plus repentance and faith. Repentance, it's, it's turning away from our old way of life and following Jesus, asking for his forgiveness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And faith, faith is trust. Trust that when Jesus died for us, he paid for our sin. Understanding the gospel plus repentance and faith equals salvation. But the story doesn't end there because when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes up resonance in our heart. The Holy Spirit initiates that work of sanctification and empowers us to bear fruit, which is why we see the last bubble. Salvation leads to good works. It leads to a changed life, or maybe we could put fruit in that category. Now, our fruit doesn't save us, but it's evidence of our salvation. So if somebody looks at their life, and over a period of time or a long period of time, they don't, they don't see that evidence of their salvation, instead of just taking fruit and trying to staple it to the fruit tree, what that person needs to do is, is maybe look at the other side of the equation and ask some really challenging questions. Do I understand the gospel? Have I responded with repentance and faith? But as I look at John 15, the main point of this passage is not bearing fruit. If we had to pick a one-word theme for John 15, 1 to 11, it would not be very hard. Bless you. Because you just heard me read the word 10 times in 11 verses. What's the one word that's repeated over and over again? In the ESV, it's abide. In the NIV, it's remain. That's the theme for this passage. And we might ask, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to abide? That's our first principle. Abide means stay plugged in to Christ. Stay plugged in to Christ. That's what it means to abide. But abiding remaining in Jesus, it's not just a one-way thing, but it's a relationship. That's what Jesus says in John 4, or John 15, um, and 4 and 5 in our passage. Follow along with me as I read verse 4 from our text. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, abiding is not one-sided, it's two-sided. We abide in Christ, he abides in us, he clings to us, he won't let go of us. Our connection to Christ is not just contingent on us. And when Jesus grabs hold of us, he won't let go. But if that's true, if Jesus is going to grab us and not let go, if he's going to hold on to us, if our relationship with the Holy Spirit is a permanent relationship, then what's the point of this command? If Jesus is going to hold us and never let us go, then why does he tell us that we've got to stay plugged in? Why does he tell us that we've got to hold fast to him? Well, to answer that question, all I need to do is look in the mirror at my own heart. Because my heart is so easily swayed, so easily pulled toward the things of this world. If we're honest, we're probably glad that no one else sees inside of our heart the thoughts that we have, the attitudes, the the judgmental spirit. Each one of us are still battling against the flesh. Friends, if sanctification, if growing in our holiness, growing in our love for Jesus, if that didn't take any work, if it didn't take any effort, if it didn't take any intentionality, then we wouldn't need half of the New Testament. And think of all of the commands that we see in the New Testament spurring us on to grow, to turn away from sin, to turn toward Christ. It's part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to be a Christ follower, that we have the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, we're still battling our sinful flesh, and that'll be a reality until we get to eternity. So this text serves as a reminder for each of us that we have to cling to Christ, that it's not always going to be natural. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be days when we feel like we're swimming upstream. There are going to be moments when the entire momentum of our heart is pulling us in the opposite direction. There's going to be days when we feel like we're holding fast to the vine, like a weatherman holding fast to a light pole in the middle of a hurricane. Abiding is not always easy, but Jesus commands us to cling to him. But I find so much comfort in this passage because notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, Sam, I want you to focus on the fruit. He doesn't say, you've got to spend 30 minutes a day in Bible reading and prayer. He doesn't say, you've got to make sure that you share your faith once a week. He doesn't say, "Uh, disciples, make sure you don't give in to lust and pride and gossip and then you'll be okay. No, what does he say? Abide. Stay connected, stay plugged in. Because when we're connected to Christ, our success is guaranteed because of the one that we're connected to. That's our second principle tonight. Being is greater than doing. Being is greater than doing. I think Jesus gives us a powerful picture in Luke's gospel of the value of being with Jesus compared to just doing things for Jesus. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Let me just read those couple of verses. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You've probably heard the story before. Can you imagine what would that be like, what that would feel like to be Martha? 
I mean, the Messiah, the savior of the world, the guy who's gonna die for your sins, just walked into your house and you're gonna serve him dinner. I mean, I think just about any sane person would be slaving away in the kitchen, making sure that the best filet mignon is prepared. Am I right? And she's thinking, oh, my sister's gonna help me. She's gonna set the table. She's gonna do all the work. But what does she do? She doesn't even take the low-hanging fruit and, and offer people drinks. She's just sitting on the ground at Jesus' feet. And Martha is infuriated. Do you know why she's infuriated? Because she's mad enough to interrupt the savior of the world as he's teaching to say, you've got to fix this. My sister is, is missing the point. And Jesus takes the opportunity to give us some valuable insight that being is more important than doing. Was Martha sitting by serving? I don't think so. But being with Jesus, spending time with him, is more important than the things that we do for him. We live in a world that values productivity and performance. <laughs> and as Christians, many of us find our value in our productivity, the things that we do for Christ. But he gives us permission to let go of the productivity, to let go of the results. He just wants us to be. So often we reduce our relationship with Jesus to what I'll call checklist Christianity. And here's how it sounds. Oh, check. I haven't given in to my besetting sin for a week. Jesus really loves me. Oh, I have three days in a row of reading a chapter of scripture. I'm really doing good in my relationship with God. Or I prayed for 10 minutes this morning. I broke a record. Wow, God must be pleased with me. I even shared my faith with a coworker. Things are Things are going great. Or, yeah, I haven't watched uh, an R-rated movie in, in well over three months, or I haven't smoked, or I haven't drank, or I haven't done this or that, and God must be pleased with me. And we check these boxes, and we allow our relationship with Jesus to be reduced by a couple of things that we do or don't do. But as I look at the New Testament, who reduced their relationship with God solely to a list of rules? The Pharisees? I think sometimes we're tempted to do the same thing. The Pharisees made their relationship with God a checklist, and then when Jesus came, what happened? They didn't even recognize him. And Jesus is telling his disciples, before you think about sharing your faith, before you think about spending time in scripture, before you think about all the amazing things that you're gonna do on my behalf, you've got to plug in. You've got to be connected to me. Because how does Jesus finish verse five? Apart from me, you can do most things. <laughs> Is that what it says? Apart from me, you can accomplish some things? No, what does he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the most important thing for us as a follower of Christ. Before we think about the things we do for Jesus, we have to stay plugged in, connected to Christ. It's amazing that the savior of the world, the one who created you, the one who died for you, wants to have a relationship with you, longs to know you, wants to call you his friend. And we can get so, I can get so distracted by all of the busyness, all of the stuff, all of the things we have to do, but we don't make that a priority. Jesus wants to call you his friend. So how do we grow? How do we grow in our relationship with Christ? Well, I think it starts with his word. Look at verse seven in our text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. 
For Jesus' disciples, his words were his teachings. But for us, his word is scripture. That if we want to know Jesus, if we want to go deep in our relationship with Jesus, we've got to spend time in his word. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sam, that sounds a lot like doing. You're talking about being, and now you're telling me to do something. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Abiding shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be a challenge, though we can make it a challenge. We can make it legalistic. We can make it overbearing, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in this text. When we think about approaching God's word, maybe we have to ask, what's my motivation? What am I looking to accomplish today? Is my motivation to to check the box so I can feel like a good Christian? Is my motivation to get my small group leader off my back who's going to ask me on Monday night if I had quiet time this week? Is my motivation to, to look impressive? Or is my motivation to spend time getting to know Jesus? His word and he comes alive to us when we spend time in his word. When we don't spend time in scripture, we're missing out on one of the greatest ways to know him. Another way to stay connected is through prayer. God speaks to us to his word. We speak to him through prayer. If one of those avenues of communication isn't working, then there's going to be a major communication breakdown in our relationship with God. But think how many times we read in the gospels that Jesus says uh, that he has to go away to a desolate place to pray. Jesus, fully God and fully man, the creator of the universe, he's taking time to go pray and talk to his father, if prayer was a priority for Jesus, can you imagine how much more of a priority it would be, should be for us? Yet how often in my life, in your life, does prayer get consigned to the seven-minute commute to work or the 15 seconds before breakfast or a couple minutes or however long it takes before we fall asleep at night? Prayer is our lifeline an opportunity to to deepen in our relationship with Christ, to talk to the Father. How amazing that we can talk to him anytime we want. We don't have to worry about him being busy. We don't have to worry about how he's going to respond. We don't have to be worried about him being on another call. He's our Father, and he always wants to talk to us. So when we focus on Christ, when we abide in him, when we seek to stay connected to him, then we will bear fruit. We're not supposed to focus on the fruit. The fruit is a byproduct of what our life looks like when we abide. Bearing fruit is not how we abide. It's what happens when we abide. So we shouldn't focus on the fruit. But if we look at our life and we don't see evidence, we don't see fruit, then the the problem isn't the fruit. The problem is the connection to the vine. And as we look at this text... Jesus gives us five characteristics of a connected Christian. That for us, we can look at these five things and it'll give us a picture of our connection to Christ. It can sort of serve as a a litmus test for how well we're plugged in. So here's five characteristics of a connected Christian. Here's the first. We will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, Jesus tells us that we prove to be his disciples. Now, when you and I hear the word fruit, what do we think of? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what we think of. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's fruit. Let me ask, was Galatians written when Jesus said this? 
No. So do you think the disciples thought of the fruit of the Spirit? I don't think so. What did the disciples think of? Did they think about obedience? Did they think about good works? They might have, but I actually think it's something a little more foundational, which might help this text make a little bit more sense. When a branch is bearing fruit, what does it tell you about the branch? That it's alive. A dead branch doesn't bear fruit, and a live branch does bear fruit, and a live branch is connected to the source. A live branch finds its source in the vine. Where do we find our source of life? Where are we connected? Where do we find our meaning, our joy, our satisfaction, our purpose? Where do we go when we need refueling and renewal? Do we go to Jesus? Where else, do, where else would people go? Maybe somebody goes to, to sex. Maybe sexual sin is the crutch that you go to when things aren't going very well. Maybe you're good for a little while, but then after a week or two, you give in. Again, is that where you go? How about work? It's easy for many of us to find our value or identity in our occupation. Maybe we care more about what our boss thinks of us than what Jesus thinks. Or maybe your, your number one goal is advancing in the company or advancing your business or gaining a good reputation in the business world. Is that where we find our source of life? How about leisure and adventure? Maybe you're living for the weekend and that's where you find meaning is in, in every time you get that three-day weekend, you're always looking ahead and planning the next trip, the next adventure. That's where you find your source of life. Or how about a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, spouse, fiance, that our whole well-being is connected to the well-being of another person so that when they're feeling good, then we're, we're great. And when, when they're down in the dumps, then we're certainly going to be down too. Do we find our source of life from another person? Well, those are just four things. I'm sure we could go on and on, can we? And many of which are good. Many are gifts. But we've got to go to Jesus first. He's got to be the first plug that we plug into to find our source, to find our meaning in our life. So that's the first. We'll bear fruit. Here's the second. We will welcome pruning. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this one. Pruning's not very fun for a branch because it involves clippers. It involves cutting off things that maybe aren't growing as well as they could to maximize growth. Pruning's not very fun for the branch. And God, in his sovereign divine plan, has used the tough stuff, uses trials in our life as pruning shears. It does not feel good. But think of James. Consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds. But think of what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God uses trials, uses the difficult stuff as the pruning shears in our life. And certainly, I've experienced spiritual growth in my life at the mountaintop of Pueblo Camp on our Mexico mission trip. But I've also experienced growth in the valley, in the struggle, in the thorns, in the, the trial. Is God using pruning in your life? Is he exposing areas of sin that need to be refined? Are you using 
the trials to drive you closer to God or are they pushing you away? Pruning is a characteristic of a connected Christian. Here's the next. We will practice prayer. This has to be maybe the most confusing verse in the whole passage. Did you catch what Jesus said right in the middle? That if you abide in me, in verse 7, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Wow, what a great promise. Ask whatever you wish. I'm going to start asking for that 2022 Shelby Mustang GT convertible, red race car red with a pinstripe. Or is it too much to ask for a vacation property and the back bowls of Vail? Or how about like three more inches so I could be a little better at basketball? Like, can I ask? No. <laughs> Why? Is this an unconditional statement or a conditional statement to my English majors? Conditional. If my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. It's like Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then... He'll give you the desires of your heart. That is, we delight ourselves in God, or to use the language of John 15, as his word goes deeper and deeper into our hearts, then our will, our desire, even the things that we ask for, is going to be conformed to his will. That is, his word goes deeper and deeper into our hearts, that we're going to pray better and better things. So is it possible that if we're praying something, praying a prayer, that hasn't been answered? Are we praying the wrong thing? Well, certainly it doesn't happen all the time, but I think it's possible. Maybe we're praying the wrong thing because so much of my prayer life can revolve around the will of Sam. Sounds like this. Lord, uh, please allow Mason Crosby to make a field goal. <laughs> Rip. Or, oh, please allow Matthias to sleep into 8 a.m. tomorrow. And then he wakes up at 6.30 a.m. Is that because God didn't want to answer my prayer? <laughs> no, it's because I prayed the wrong thing. For some reason, God desired that we all wake up at 6.30 instead. And I won't know that until I get to heaven. I think answered prayer is one of the characteristics of a connected Christian. As we look at our life, do we see answered prayer? Are we praying for things in line with God's will or am I praying things that center on the will of Sam? Here's our next characteristic. We will keep his commandments. This one might seem obvious. When we're connected to Christ, we're gonna obey. When we stay plugged to him, we're gonna do what he wants us to do. We're gonna walk in obedience. And Jesus makes this command really easy in uh, John 15, verse 12. He gives us one commandment. This is my command, that you love one another as I've loved you. That's the text we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. Do we see obedience in our life? Do we see a, a love for other Christians? Those are characteristics of a connected Christ follower. Here's the last. It comes from our final verse from our text. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy. I think it was strategic that Jesus chose the word joy instead of happiness in the words of Pastor Jeff, happiness comes from our happy happenings, but joy comes from Jesus. That joy, it's not dependent on our circumstances. It transcends our circumstances. That when we're connected to Christ, when we abide in him, that there's a, a rightness, a, a joy that will transcend even the worst of circumstances, a contentment in the midst of life situations, a gratitude 
in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, a gratitude in all circumstances. Only in Jesus can we find true and lasting joy. When you look at your life, do you see joy? It's the final characteristic from our text of a connected Christian. Now, as you look at your life, is it marked by these things? Do you see evidence of these in your life? Now, certainly not perfectly. If we were perfect in these areas, there'd be no room for pruning, right? That we're all still growing to look more like Jesus. But if someone looks at their life and doesn't see any evidence of these characteristics, that hints at the depth of our relationship, our connection to Christ. Because you were created to abide. You're created to have a relationship with Jesus, not to focus on the fruit, but to focus on him. Stay plugged into Christ. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, what a a rich text that we could spend a lot of time talking about tonight. Um, But may you instill in each of us a, a deeper and deeper desire to stay plugged into Jesus. That we can take a break from focusing on productivity, focusing on results, focusing on the things that we do for you, and focusing on staying connected to him, staying plugged in to him, just being with Jesus and your word and through prayer. So as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, may you guide our conversation, may our time uh, just be uh, fulfilling and deepening, not just in our relationship with you, but with one another. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.